are very fortunate that we can have guests of Badur's experience and not such foresight. Uh, and she joins us today from Jerusalem. Uh, Badur, uh, as many of you recall, has been on Palestine's deep dive before. Um, she's a legal researcher for Jerusalem Legal Aid and Human Rights Center and um, joins us, as I said, from Jerusalem. We give you a special deep dive welcome. Badur. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mark Seddon. Uh, I used to work as the UN correspondent for Al Jazeera English Television. I've sub subsequently worked for the United Nations uh, as a speechwriter for the Secretary General. Tremendous fact, um, and we were just talking about this before we came uh, on uh, live uh, tonight on the show, uh, and how um, time and grief almost uh, becomes um, weaponized uh, in the case of Palestinians, especially those Palestinians who've been slain and whose bodies are retained by the state of Israel. Um, so I, I'm delighted to be talking to Badur. And I just wonder, Badur, thank you again for joining us. If Before we get on to the main topic in hand um, today, is if I could just ask you one or two, uh, since we last uh, spoke, uh, I wanted to ask you if there have been any more um, recent developments, um, because we spent a lot of time before talking about the situation and, uh, and in Sheikh Jarrah and the uh, planned evictions. And I just wondered if you could give us an update, really. And I'm just also wondering, because in that time since we last spoke too, um, we have had an intervention by the Biden administration on this issue, calling for the Israeli actions to be halted. What is the situation there? I know you're, you've been hands-on all the way through. What, what is, what's happening? Uh, there was a court hearing on the 2nd of August before the Israeli High Court of Injustice, where um, Palestinians filed a leave to appeal the decision of the Israeli District Court to expel the families. Uh, and the Israeli court, again, after postponing, it's, first it had to be said that the irony that the hearing reached is unprecedented, really, because the whole hearing was conducted in Hebrew. Uh, volunteer people had to volunteer to translate to the families because the families didn't understand a word of what was being said. There was no professional translator appointed by the court. And so and the whole hearing was conducted in Hebrew. At some point, one of the judges at the high court suggested as a sort of compromise for the families to agree to be recognized as tenants, but to pay uh, rent to the settlers, basically recommending the families to acknowledge the claims of the settlers of ownership over their houses. Uh, and after that, the court uh, postponed uh, and asked, re required from the families to bring further proof and list that they are connected to the houses that they live in. Uh, families sent further list, and they are still waiting uh, for a response from the lawyers of the settlers. It's just a big legal uh, quandary that the Israeli court is imposing on Palestinians in order to delay and to postpone. And during that time, I should just uh, uh, say that one of the most prominent activists in Sheikh Jarrah and one of the really most amazing voices in the neighborhood, Murad Atiyeh, was arrested by Israeli occupation forces as he's, and he's now facing charges of terrorism. Why? Because he was leading peaceful protests because he was organizing on the ground and working silently but very, and invisibly, but very powerfully and strongly. 
And this is the way of Israeli occupation forces taking advantage of the fact that there is uh, relatively lesser, less attention on the cases of Sheikh Jarrah to retaliate from those who led the, were on the front lines of the protests. So this is one of the things that happened then. And we, we believe that the arrest and interrogation uh, of Murad and the illegal uh, interrogation of Murad is just the start of a wave of in campaign of intimidation that will target those activists on the ground in Sheikh Jarrah and all over Jerusalem. So these 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 uh, these uh, court cases um, that are being conducted in Hebrew over the evictions are they also conducted in Hebrew over claims of terrorism? against individuals? I mean, how does it operate? And on what basis, on what, on what international legal basis do these courts uh, have to operate uh, in East Jerusalem, over East Jerusalem? Obviously, we know that the laws that should be applied to the eastern part of Jerusalem should be international law, not Israeli law. That the, the very fact that Israeli law is imposed on, East, on the eastern part of Jerusalem is obviously we, 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 we realize that all parts of Jerusalem are occupied for us Palestinians. But even if we consider the perspective of international law, Israel's annexation of the eastern part of Jerusalem is illegal even under international law. And Israel's imposition of its own local and domestic laws over Palestinians living in East Jerusalem and forcing uh, them to undergo its uh, hearings in, in the occupier's language is obviously illegal. It's all, it's all cases. There are certain occasions when the court offers translator, but it has to be said that on many occasions the, tra the translator, translator isn't a professional interpreter. We're talking about a police officer, a soldier who can act as a translator. And there were many cases where uh, what we say lost on translation uh, was even hurt the defendants and hurt Palestinians because of the mistranslation that was uh, uh, due to the fact that there were no professional interpreters. So, yeah, all hearing. Can I just, Badu, can I just come in on that? Because um, up until possibly about 20 odd years ago in Britain, it was possible for police to conduct interviews uh, with accused with, that, with, just, with just notes being recorded. Um, and then it became, as a result of a series of uh, miscarriages of justice, a requirement that all of these interviews um, uh, must be taped and can be offered as evidence in court for both the prosecution and the defence. So would it be the case uh, for um, these cases that you've mentioned that uh, taped material could be available? Or is it all handwritten? No, I mean, they don't do that. No, they don't do that here. They actually, while even if there is in the interrogation someone who can translate to the defendant, if there is a miscarriage, if there is a mistranslation or something that the defendant will have to fight really tooth and nail in order to prove that there was a mistake. And actually there was a, an infamous case that happened but for a Palestinian who wrote something like a poem on Facebook, a, sta a Facebook status about Palestinians. And because her the piece that she wrote was mistranslated, she was subjected to years and years of interrogation that she had to bring expert translators and experts in the Arabic language in order to prove that they actually mistranslated the piece uh, in her poem or in, in, in the piece that she wrote to prove that she committed or she incited for terrorism. So basically these are some of the we always say Kafkaesque, but it's really here in Israeli courts. It's literally happen happens every day. 
Well, D David Seddon, who um, I hasten to add is no relation of mine, but is a, a former lecturer of mine, actually, at the University of East Anglia at the School of Development Studies, he's sent in a comment. Uh, David says, it seems that the law is being weaponized and the courts are prepared to go along with all of this. Normally, it's the right of all participants to have official tapes of the hearing and an official translator uh, stroke interpreter. This is certainly what happens in the United Kingdom now in asylum cases. So that's uh, that's that's from David. And by the way, we, we with Buddha, we uh, do have this opportunity for you to send in um, your questions and your points. So please do. And I just wanted to move on very briefly, um, Buddha, also to another story uh, recently that's broken. Um, it's, it hasn't had a huge amount of publicity in the UK media, but what a, what a great surprise that is. Uh, but that is about the um, escape, recent escapes of Palestinian prisoners. Um, and in fact, there was once there was a story of some of these prisoners actually getting out and using using spoons to help dig them dig their way out. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary escape. Um, I suppose the question is, what what's actually happened there? Did any of them manage to evade capture? Um, what's happened to those who might have been captured? What 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 is the story with these uh, Palestinian prisoner escapees? Six Palestinian prisoners managed to escape from a maximum security prison of Gilboa, uh, which is near the Shabta prison. We're talking about a prison that was uh, built in 2004 in order to absorb the huge amount of Palestinians who were being incarcerated by Israel during the Second Intifada. It's a relatively new uh, prison built, but it's very near the infamous Shatta prison. Uh, on the 6th of uh, September, six Palestinians escaped, as you said, through using very primitive tools. They dug a tunnel. In fact, the tunnel, they've been digging this tunnel since last December, as information that's being uh, received through the lawyers uh, show. Uh, after Israel arrested, recaptured four of the six prisoners, two of the six, uh, Ayham, Kamanje, and Munad al-Fa'at are still uh, free. They haven't been caught by Israel yet, and hopefully they will stay free. Uh, but four were arrested. Two were arrested in Nazareth on Friday afternoon. The other two were arrested in uh, some place in Marj ibn Amir. It's a, a Palestinian area close to the prison where the prisoners escaped on Saturday on, on dawn. But despite their recapture, the uh, success that they managed by their, the very fact of their escape, the fact that they actually shattered the Israeli myth of that these are impenetrable jails, that Israel surveillance, uh, apparatus of surveillance and control can control every suffocate, every aspect of Palestinian lives has inspired Palestinians. It has caused something uh, really, what it brought for Palestinians, what it provoked, the fact that we saw how prisoners, it actually broke the binary of the outside and the inside, because it is the prisoners who were inside, who managed to dig these tunnels, who managed to escape and to give us, we who are outside, this perception of freedom that we all shared in their collective freedom, that their collective rebellion, that their small rebellion actually meant the world for us because it showed how their yearning for freedom, this raw, uncontrollable thirst for freedom that they managed to uh, manifest by the act of their escape, by the power of their imagination, by the sheer courage 
it's something that we really still can't digest, can't really understand how they managed to find the courage, the imagination, the intelligence, the perseverance to work for such a hard time, some of them for such a long time. Some of them had even tried to abscond before and they were, uh, they were uh, exposed and they still repeated it. Mm-hmm. And all their lawyers wow. actually that they will try again that this is what Israel can't really kill, our hunger to be free. And the prisoners, the, the six prisoners, the two who are still free, the four who were recaptured, showed that not even Israel's most advanced weapons and methods of surveillance can kill this spirit of freedom. That's very well, well As you're saying that, I'm thinking um, maybe there's going to be a film made one day about this escape. There was a great film made about the British escapees at the end of the Second World War called The Great Escape. And uh, you know, it was the same indomitable spirit really there. People were refused to be held in these maximum security prisons and managed to find a way out. So um, that's an extraordinary story. We must, we must uh, see what happens next. And I can quite see from what you're saying how that would have given people quite a lot of hope actually. But look, um, we're, we're here today with uh, our special guest, Badur Hassan. So please do send in your questions. And I really wanted to move on now with Badur to the main um, part of uh, the uh, our program tonight, which is to look at this specific issue of uh, the, uh, the practice that the Israeli state has. And I'm not sure, I was trying to find out whether other um, sovereign states do this as a matter of, of common practice as well. I couldn't find another state that does this, holding on to the bodies of slain uh, people, in this case, Palestinians. And recently, um, Badur, we had uh, Nura Erekat as a guest on Palestine Deep Dive. You might have seen her. And she told us um, a particularly harrowing story about a relative of hers who was shot six times in the upper part of his body and killed while trying to cross a checkpoint between two Palestinian cities. And this was during a wedding. And his body was held by the Israelis and was prevented from being returned. And a lot of people, when they heard this, were pretty shocked by it. Now, of course, people who follow these things much more closely are well aware of this practice, but a lot of people were shocked by this. Uh, And they then came to realize that this is actually uh, a, a firm part of Israeli policy, and that there are, and you'll correct me if, if we're wrong about this, but over 80 bodies of slain Palestinians being held quite illegally by the Israeli authorities right now. I mean, is that right? And t- tell us how this policy came about, if you will. So in addition to the 82 bodies that are held as bargaining chips, uh, and, and I'm not using this word, I, I, I choose to use it. It's not a euphemism. It's something that the Israel actually acknowledges it explicitly that they're holding the bodies as bargaining chips. They're not ashamed to say it. In addition to these 82 bodies that include the body of Ariqat, uh, that has been withheld since June last year. Uh, there are also 254 bodies that have been buried over the decades in cemeteries of numbers. These are cemeteries located in closed military zones where the bodies were dumped in these cemeteries without any documentation, without registration, only indicated to by numbers and in inhumane and in degrading conditions. A policy that started decades before Hamas had even existed. It's a policy that dates back to the 1960s. But concerning the specific policy of withholding bodies, and Mark, I think it's really important since uh, to, to say that 
It's not something that Israel, in, Israel invented, the withholding of bodies. It's actually part of the heritage, the colonial heritage that was bequeathed Israel by the British colonial uh, regime. In 1945, when uh, British uh, colonial rule imposed the emergency regulations, Article 133 of this emergency regulation authorized the military commander, the British military commander at the time, to prevent the burial or the return of the body of any person who is killed in one of the central prisons at the time or who is killed in combat. And this uh, rule and the, the, the entirety of the regime of re uh, emergency regulations was part of Britain's counterinsurgency regime against Palestinians that reached its height in 1936 to quell the Palestinian Revolution, the Great Palestinian Revolution, and obviously remained until the end of British, uh, the British mandate over Palestine. When Israel was established in 1948, it uh, maintained the application of many of the regulations, the British regulations, including three particularly notorious regulations. The regulation that allows the Israeli military commander to withhold the bodies to prevent their burial or their return to their loved ones. The uh, policy of uh, administrative detention, which is the detention of people without charges or trial, and also punitive demolitions. Punitive demolitions, which is demolishing someone's house, the family's house, for an act allegedly committed by one of the family's members as a punishment for the entire family. It's not something that Israel invented. It's something that was applied and implemented by British forces. And it's a regulation that existed, existed in Britain's uh, emergency and defense regulations and is, are still used by Israel until our day as a way to punish Palestinians, to control every aspect of Palestinian lives. We talked before about Israel's maximum security prisons and Israel's carceral regime. But this carceral regime actually extends beyond our lives. It doesn't only haunt the living Palestinians, it even haunts the dead Palestinians, even Palestinians who are imprisoned, who die in Israeli prison. Israel is authorized and authorizes itself based on this British emergency regulation to actually keep holding their bodies even after their death in prison, which is literally uh, expanding the death, the, the prison sentence, sentence posthumously. It's something that doesn't happen in any other place in the world, really. And it's I was fascinated to hear what you're saying about the, um, the, the fact that a lot of these um, a lot of this legislation is colonial era legislation that has been kept, um, and as has been often the case in other countries as well. You know, when there's been liberation movements to overthrow the colonial authority, suddenly you you dis, you discover years later that draconian legislation that's being introduced, whether it be in Zimbabwe or Israel or whatever, has its antecedents in the colonial law. But was it also the case that this law? By the for the British and, and the Palestine mandate was also used against uh, the Stern Gang, against Haganah, or is it just a, 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 against uh, Palestinians back then? Just as a historical, it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be implemented on both sides, but we know the way that the British implemented whether to repress the Palestinian revolution of 1936-1939 and whether to continue repressing Palestinian in, 1940s, for the, in the 1940s was specifically tailored to actually repress Palestinians, even though its language is supposed to be neutral. It's supposed to 
against both, really. But its application was overwhelmingly against Palestinians. And the funny thing is that the funny and sad thing, uh, Mark, is when the Israeli court, the Israeli High Court of Injustice, comes to interpret this regulation, does the court want to say, okay, Israel is authorized to withhold bodies, but we need a legal source. What is the legal source? The legal source is this regulation. So here comes one, the, the Israel, Israel's chief justice, her, her name is uh, Esther Hayot, and she twists and turns uh, and does this strange and weird interpretation of a regulation enacted in 1945 to say, okay, it's true that the text of the regulation doesn't say specifically and explicitly that Israel can use the bodies as bargaining chips, but it's enough that the regulation says that the military commander can withhold the body for security reason. And let's just extend the definition of security. And we know how Israel broadens the definition of security in order to meet, it, to meet its needs and to meet its uh, uh, prohibitions against Palestinians. And this is what she did. She expanded and broadened the definition of security and interpreted the regulation in a way that says that, yes, the Israeli army is authorized to withhold the Palestinian bodies in order to, to use them as a way to pressure Hamas into negotiating for the release of two Israeli soldiers' bodies that are held, supposedly held by But it even went further, one step further, in, in just in August, actually, in the decision over the case of Ariqat, the case said that Israel, even if Palestinians who are not affiliated with Hamas and who did not uh, carry out any attack against Israel, were just allegedly carried an attack or carried at a, a, an attack that wasn't severe and result, didn't result in the killing of any Israeli soldiers, even those Palestinians, their bodies can be held. So actually what the broadening, the further broadening of the interpretation of the regulation by the Israeli court last August said, regardless of the affiliation of the political, uh, the Palestinian, regardless of the severity of her or his alleged attack, and it's important to say alleged because it's Israel who decides whether there was attack, whether it's alleged or not. But, but we will go back to this point that regardless of what Israel says, regardless of the motive, every Palestinian have the right to dignified burial, regardless of what he or she did or allegedly did or did not do. Mm -hmm. Israel broke the definition of this attack, and, and, and based on this, Israel continues to withhold these 82 bodies, even those who are not affiliated with Hamas, even those who didn't, uh, who just tried to carry out attack or just were accused of carrying a knife, including children, uh, Mark. Yes, well, I was going to get on last about that. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I, mean, I, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, when, when you talk about bargaining chips, what on earth are Uh, our, our bodies being used in terms of bargaining chips. But before I do, there's a point that Robert in London um, has sent in a question to you. And he says, um, but do, is it true the bodies are kept at Tel Aviv University? If, if this is the case, why do universities around the world continue to maintain official links with the university blatantly enabling the violation of international law? Great point. Uh, the, the vast majority of these 82 bodies are held in a morgue called Abu Kbir. This is the Israeli forensic institution, which is affiliated to the Tel Aviv University. And they are uh, held in degrading conditions. 
uh, and in sometimes uh, when they get out in the cases where there were bodies that were released from these morgues, they were they were like ice ice bags, really. They were indistinguishable, their features, the features of the body because of the prolonged period of detention in these morgues, the features of the uh, kids or the young men that who were uh, withheld in these morgues were virtually indistinguishable. And, and yes, this is what we always say, that this is why we call for academic boycott, because you can't really separate the Israeli academia from the violations that are uh, perpetrated by the Israeli military and by Israeli military authorities. And Abu Kbir, as a forensic medical institute, is part and parcel of the Tel Aviv University and is responsible uh, directly and indirectly for the perpetuation of a war crime, which is the withholding of Palestinian bodies, the collective punishment against Palestinians, the denial of Palestinian families the right to family life, uh, and all the uh, and the denial, obviously, of the right to dignity, the dignity of the living and the dignity of the dead, in addition to the torture and the, the severe and inhumane and degrading treatment to which the families and the dead bodies are subjected. So it is. This is precisely why we always say it is important to boycott the academic Israeli institutions, even those that claim to be liberal and and pretend to be liberal, because they end up supporting and perpetuating this uh, prolonged system of human rights violation and of degrading Palestinians. Well, Dave, David Seddon responds by saying uh, that uh, Robert's point and your response to it, uh, uh, it should really be taken up by an organization called, and you'll have to tell us what this stands for, David, BRICUP, B-R-I-C-U-P, and all those concerned with university complicity in war crimes. I mean, but moving on from that, um, absolutely shocking revelation actually about the about the relationship between the university and the forensics and the and the morgue. Um, you mention bodies as bargaining chips. Is there no statute of limitations on how long these bodies may be retained for? Can it be indefinite? And also, when you talk about bargaining chips, what on earth are they bargaining? The, the the bodies of slain Palestinians for uh, for two Israeli soldiers who were killed in 2014 when they invaded the Gaza Strip in 2014. Israel alleges that the bodies of these two Israeli soldiers who were killed are held by Hamas. And but but it's also very important to say that this policy, as I said, of withholding the bodies of Palestinians dates back to the 1960s, like more than 20 years before the establishment of Hamas. First, it only targeted mainly targeted Palestinian Arab combatants who managed to enter historic Palestine and who uh, fought against the Israeli occupation forces as part of the Palestinian revolution. Uh, and but then the Israel kept expanding and extending this policy. First, in the, especially in, during the first Intifada mark, they used it as a way to punish the families because they treated funerals as a weapon. Israel said that Palestinian funerals are a way for Palestinians to mobilize because most funerals turn into protests, turn into a wave of a new wave of rebellion. And in order to cut this expression of public and popular grief and to cut the possibility of this grief being transformed into a revolutionary force, Israel began withholding the bodies and denying or delaying the return of these bodies, claiming that there is a threat to public security 
anxiety posed by the funerals. And then after that, in the late, especially after 2015, during the wave of individual Palestinian attacks that started in, in October 2015, Israel resumed the use of this policy on a broad basis, withholding hundreds of bodies, first not only as bargaining chips, but also due to the, what, what I mentioned, uh, to use them as a way to pressure the families not to hold a huge, a big funerals, to prevent Palestinians from joining in these funerals. And actually in 2018, this is probably another shocking revelation, Israel amended its counterterrorism law and added an article that says that the Israeli police is authorized to restrict the number of Paris participants in the funerals, to determine that the funeral can only be held at night, that only 20 or 25 people can attend the funeral, to even control the place of burial of the Palestinians, and to even impose a fine, sometimes that reaches thousands of dollars against any family that violates the conditions of the bail if they want to receive the body of their loved one. So it, it exists as a law within Israel counterterrorism regime that controls the funeral, every aspect of our intimacy, of our grief, in order to put pressure on the family to accept these conditions. In addition to all these restrictions comes the use of these bodies as bargaining chips. For two Israeli soldiers who are allegedly held by Hamas in Gaza, Israel indefinitely has, has been holding the bodies of 82 Palestinians, including an 18-year-old boy, uh, Abdul Hamid Abu Surur, whose body has been withheld by Israel since April 2016, who has nothing to do with Hamas, by the way, but even if he did, Israel should release all the bodies regardless. But the, many of these bodies, as I said, have nothing to do with Hamas still, but somehow Israel wants to convince us that it's using them as a bargaining chips, even though Hamas has repeatedly said that the whole reason for uh, holding uh, any soldier's bodies is to uh, to have a prisoner exchange deal with living prisoners because we know that there are thousands, more than 5,000 Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli prison, including many held for life, facing life sentences. But Israel somehow without proving anything, without proving that holding these bodies actually leads to negotiations, continues to withhold their, these bodies, continues to punish their families, continues to prevent their families even from seeing whether their loved ones are alive or dead. Many of the families that we're working with, Mark, said, we, we, we don't believe that our son or our daughter has died. We haven't seen the body. Mm haven't mourned it, we haven't cried, we haven't seen any pictures, but the only proof that we have for the death is Israel's claim. Israel even re refuses to send death certificates to the families. And, and, and so people, their love, their grief is suspended. They're still waiting. And it's kind of, there is, it's pain in installments because on one day they send, they send some objects that the slain has left behind. On the other, they send their clothes. And ultimately they probably will agree to return their body, but only after a long and daunting legal battle. But they keep renewing a one that hasn't been closed in the first place, denying them the even the right to say goodbye to their uh, loved one. 
to put a flower on their grave, to say the very basic uh, right, uh, funeral rights. So this is the dilemma that 82 Palestinian families are living through, that 254 Palestinians who have been facing the fact that their loved ones' bodies are held in these horrible symmetries of numbers for decades on some occasions, even though some of these Israel, after again a long long uh, years of pressure by legal organizations, including JLAC, finally agreed to reveal the place of burial of 123 Palestinians who are withheld in these cemeteries of numbers. Israel still refuses to agree to hold DNA tests in order to document and in order to identify the bodies. Even though the families are basically saying, this is our last chance, and we're talking about whether it's part of 90. All that they wanted to say goodbye to actually know where their loved ones are exactly buried. And Israel still continues to procrastinate, continues to delay year after year. Even the very basic thing of conducting a DNA test, Palestinians have to pay from their own pocket in order to conduct their these DNA tests. Well, as you were saying this, I was just thinking about the um about the intense um West, especially Western media coverage of events in Afghanistan and of anything relating to um, Taliban activities and Taliban reprisals against women or uh, or people who are opposed to them and what have you. Um, and I was just thinking to myself, well, do you know if the Taliban were doing this, withholding people's uh, slain bodies for bargaining chips, we would be never hearing the end of this. But uh, today we are hearing from you um, what has been going on in very great detail, and if, if at least one good thing can come out of uh, today, is the fact that um, you this issue of the relationship between the universities and this whole process has been uh, has been brought to a wider attention. And um, so there's been mention of the British Committee for Universities. Um, uh, so that is uh, that that this information is going to be taken to them, to the British Committee for Universities of Palestine. Uh, and um, David Seddon's a member of that uh, organization. And so at least we can feel in a small way that we can do something here at Palestine Deep Dive. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a truly shocking situation. I, I, I just also wondered, uh, because this is a question, I remember when I was a, a reporter at Al Jazeera, there was a case of uh, an IDF um, soldier who had whose body had been kept, as the Israelis said, as a bargaining chip. Uh, that bargaining chip, my recollection was for the release of live prisoners. But can you can you give us any indication uh, how many uh, Israelis former you know Israeli soldiers slain Israeli soldiers might be being held by Hamas now or at any time? Has it uh, ever been more than two? What is the situation? Now there are only two, in addition to two, two uh, Israelis who are not soldiers, uh, who, Hama, who entered Gaza uh, and Hamas is keeping them. But most of Israel's focus is in the on these two soldiers because the other two, one is an Ethiopian, the other is, is actually Palestinian, but has an Israeli citizenship. So Israel doesn't really care about them. Right. Israel really cares about the Zionist soldiers, basically. So the, we're only talking in terms of soldiers and all the attention is on the soldiers, is, is on two. And now, again, Israel knows that the only thing that will lead Hamas to release these two bodies is an, a prisoner exchange deal. 
with law, uh, with living uh, prisoners, not with these bodies, because Hamas has always maintained this from the first day. This is the same what happened with the Gilad Shalit case. And I think you're probably referring to one case of uh, Hezbollah and the Israeli war pilot who was supposedly killed or who disappeared, who went missing, Ilan Sardon. Uh, and actually in the 1990s, it's another uh, one of the most notorious and horrible episodes in many of the Israeli Supreme Courts of Injustices cases that Israel, uh, on, in the first hearing of the Israeli court, including the loaded uh, Judge uh, Aharon Barak, who is always praised for his liberalism and his progressive opinions. He was one of those who initially said that Israel was entitled to uh, imprison uh, Lebanese citizens, non-soldiers, non citizens, uh, normal citizens, as, a bar as bargaining chips in order to get information about the whereabouts of Ilan Sadoum. Imagine talking about a case where the Israeli court initially authorized the, the, uh, the imprisonment, taking hostage of people who have absolutely nothing. Israel acknowledged that they had during its occupation of South Lebanon, that had absolutely nothing to do with any combat effort against Israel in order to exchange them for info, to put pressure on Hezbollah to uh, reveal information about the whereabouts of Ilan Sadon. This decision, this initial decision was overturned, but only after huge media pressure, because it was so notorious that Israel had to overturn it in a further hearing. But this same principle that guided Israel back then in the 1990s, it is what guided Israel's decision to authorize the withholding of Palestinian prisoners as bargaining chips. And I should say that even the Israeli judges who opposed the decision, who opposed this policy, they didn't oppose it because they are principled or because they say they feel like this policy is immoral. They said we oppose it because there is no specific Israeli law that allows us to do so. Because these, Israel, these British regulations are too old. They, 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 are, they kind of are antique. They, they shouldn't be used. We should have a domestic, a modern, contemporary domestic law that explicitly and directly allows Israel to do so. By not having this law, Israel violates the principle of uh, legal authorization. So even those uh, judges that are supposedly, are supposed to be more enlightened, they didn't oppose the policy per se. They oppose the fact that there is no new specific law that allowed this policy to happen, which means that if Israel agreed to enact a specific law that specifically says, yes, Israel is authorized to withhold bodies in order to exchange them in potential negotiations, these judges then would have absolutely no problem with such an immoral policy. So just mm. go to show the complicity of Israel's judicial system and all the violations that the Israeli army is committing and all the violations that the Israeli government is committing. You can never separate between the role of the Israeli court and between all the perpetuation of human rights and the occupation of Israel. The Israeli, since 1948, the Israeli court has played an active role in legitimizing the most horrendous and the most brutal of Israeli policies, from land, mass land confiscation to the killing of Palestinians, to mass incarceration, to administrative detention. All these policies could not have happened without the full green light by the Israeli court, which continues to play its role with some exceptions. But even these exceptions only prove the rule that the Israeli court has always its function as a court. It exists 
to legitimize Israeli occupation. But if I, if I might just come in, we've had um, Michael Ingber has uh, has been in touch, uh, and he and Michael says, according to Wikipedia, the Forensic Institute at Abu Kabir is indeed officially affiliated with the Sackler Medical Institute of the Tel Aviv University. This is another fact justifying the demand of BDS that all institutions of Israel be boycotted. Um, David Seddon says judicial complicity is evident and should be called out. But whilst you were telling us about the situation with the Israeli judiciary, it struck me that the big elephant in the room, if you like, is, of course, international law, the international... Court of Human Rights, the Geneva Convention. Um, I, I'm assuming that these avenues have been traversed, that, uh, you know, these cases have been taken up. The 82, what has been, what has actually been described as necroviolence, actually, necroviolence, violence against the dead, the holding illegally of these Palestinians who have been killed. What, what has been the process through with the international law? Yeah, speaking of, just uh, as a footnote, speaking of the Sackler uh, uh, medical, I just want to highly recommend a book about the Sackler dynasty. It's The Empire of Pain by Patrick Radenkeef about the role of how the Sackler family uses philanthropy and uses its uh, financial support for universities and medical institutes to cover up its role in the opioid crisis. So I think it's a very important book and it's kind of all these empires of evil collaborate in a way. Mm. Uh, yes, actually De Leon coined the term of necroviolence to refer to a policy to a violation that was that is committed by the United States border police against uh, Mexican undocumented uh, Central American and Mexican uh, immigrants who are trying to cross the borders are die in the Sonoran desert. And the way their bones and their remains are treated, the humiliation to which their uh, human remains are subjected, he called that necroviolence. And I, I, in our research, we adopted this term necroviolence. We adopted also the term of necropolitics to refer to Israel's regime of control over the bodies of the dead and the, how it's it humiliates these bodies and puts pressure on their families by holding the body. Now, in terms of international law, there are certain, there are clear prohibitions under international law against the degradation and against the humiliation of uh, the mortal remains of uh, soldiers. The problem is Israel doesn't recognize Palestinians as combatants. It only acknowledges Palestinians as illegal infiltrators or illegal combatants. So it doesn't give them any rights under international humanitarian law or under the Fourth Geneva Convention, even though Article 130, for example, of the Fourth Geneva Convention uh, encourages state parties to uh, and to facilitate the return and the repatriation of the awarded. Even though even Professor Michael Link, in his report on Israel's, uh, who is the United Nations Rapporteur for the situation in Palestine and the occupied territory, uh, he acknowledges that the withholding of bodies is a form of collective punishment. There was also the United Nations a Committee Against Torture also acknowledged that the withhold in 2016 that the withholding of bodies is a form of torture against the families. So despite all of these recognitions, despite of the despite the uh, condemnation of the policy by special by several special repertoires and by several committees at the United Nations, there is still very 
minimal attention to this policy. The United uh, uh, Nations Secretary even called for Hamas to release the two bodies of the soldiers. Did not Gutierrez, he did not mention a single word about the hundreds of bodies that are withheld in symmetries of numbers or the 82 bodies, even though we send him a message and asked him to comment about the issue, to demand that Israel release the bodies and return them for their uh, loved ones for burial. He still has not commented, he still has not said anything about it. Uh, obviously, this issue, it's we're still the, the, the case before the ICC. It's a case that is going to take years and years, and we obviously want the families to receive their uh, dead ones for burial as soon as possible. It is one of the arenas before which this issue can be raised because it can amount to a war crime, especially if it's treated as a one form of enforced disappearance or as a form of collective punishment. Uh, there are on paper there are uh, prohibitions against this policy and there are limitations. But again, international law is toothless, Mark. There, is, there, are, clear there are clear prohibitions in international law. For example, we talked about the escape of the Palestinian prisoners. Under international law and under the third Geneva Conventions, Israel is prohibited from uh, punishing these prisoners for trying to escape because under IHL, war prisoners have the right to try to escape. It's, it's a natural right. But Israel does not treat Palestinian political prisoner or prisoners of war as such. It treats them as terrorists. And by terming, by coining this term, Israel even denies them the blank, the protection that international human rights law allows them and gives them. So Israel continuously keeps uh, crossing and violating and flouting international law, even though, again, it's not that we have such huge faith in international law. We, have, we are aware to how limited international law is. We know that in its roots, international law is a tool, uh, is a colonial tool basically and it, its aim is to protect the powerful states and to maintain this state uh, the privileges of state and, and to just probably sugarcoat wars more than anything else but even the limited protection that international law somehow allows is denied palestinians because israel israel treats palestinians as unmournable ungrievable. It's, it's something we can go back to the uh, period of uh, uh, ancient Greece. It, it, this policies, these uh, practices happened in ancient Greece. But even then, even then we can remember how Antigone fought in order to bury her brother because she said it's the laws of the gods, the natural laws prevents you from holding the body and, and not burying it. If we remember in, in the Iliad how even the, the brutal Achilles agreed to return the body of Hector whom he killed because he felt pity for his father. So even in ancient Greece, we saw the importance given to burial. We saw the importance given to allowing the families, to, the loved ones to honor them. People for years would take breaks from the war to just allow the dead to be buried or burned or whatever. And even Israel now in the 21st century, the country that always said it's the only democracy in the entire galaxy, in the, in, in the multiverse probably, but it's denies the Palestinian rights that were even even acknowledged in ancient Greek and in Homeric epics. So it just goes to show how really it's, it's something unfathomable for us that it's 2021 and we still have to fight for our loved ones uh, right to be buried. Just the 
most basic of rights, something that every family in the world should have, is to say goodbye to their loved ones, to have a funeral. We, in, for us, it's not even a, a something that's a foregone conclusion. It's something that we have to do for fight for for years, for decades, just to have this most basic of rights. We're we're stuck in a labyrinth, Mark, in which every aspect of our life as Palestinians, from our birth, from our right to be registered as as children, from our lives to be educated, from our life to get married, from our right to get married or with whom we can live. All these aspects are controlled by Israel, are controlled by Israeli bureaucracy and Israeli laws. But even how we die and where we die and our places of burial, it's, it's we live in a place, Israel is a country that transforms a cemetery, an Islamic cemetery in Jerusalem into a museum for tolerance. There is no. no but but uh, as you're saying this, I'm 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 recollecting that I was I was uh, when I was an Al Jazeera reporter, I had to report on the yeah. uh, arrest and the arraigning of um, Radovan Karadzic, uh, his uh, his bring, bringing him to the Hague and putting him in front of the International Criminal Court, and uh, there must be a hope uh, that one day some of these Israelis who have been involved in uh, criminal activity like this will also face justice. But there's a Tash in Manchester says, uh, just before this live show started, I read an Al Jazeera piece detailing the torture for the four Palestinian prisoner escapees have faced since being recaptured. It seems the Palestinians wholesale are imprisoned, whether it be through literal incarceration or under Israel's apartheid and settler colonialism. And now even the dead too, apparently. Sandra Shatila uh, asks, um, well, following on from what we've just been talking about, will the withholding of bodies be brought up at the International Criminal Court, do you think? We will try to bring it up. It wasn't, it wasn't included among the first uh, uh, list of things to be examined. Uh, by the prosecutor, by the former prosecutor, but that was not a definitive list. We will look into specific cases, especially in cases where the withholding amounted to forcible disappearance. There is a case of a prisoner, Anis Dole, uh, who was killed in Israeli prisons in 1981. And since then, Israel refused to uh, divulge his uh, fate. Uh, and, and again, after some 20 years or 30 years, when we when JLAC reopened the file of the Palestinians who were buried in cemeteries of numbers or who died in prisons and who remained undocumented, we, after, ser after searching for his remains, is, and there were several exhumations, but the body of Anis was not found. Uh, and then the Israeli court said that, yes, the Israeli army exhausted all the attempts of searching for the body. Israel, the Israeli army said, the body went missing, even though he died in a prison. So he died under the most controlled place that it's every it's, it's under full Israeli control. And somehow Israel says that his body went missing. So it definitely amounts to enforce disappearance. We have to be careful with, with which cases we adopt, because you have to uh, show that there are prima facie evidence, or I, I don't want to go into specific legal detail, but you have to show evidence that this amounts to a war crime or a crime against humanity as such can be uh, prosecuted and can be charged. This is something that should be obviously studied and should be researched. I think what before that, and because the, the ICC is going to take a long time, I think especially people, people in the United Kingdom can do a lot. 
since we're talking about a policy that is implemented on the basis of a British emergency regulation. I think people in the UK, UK citizens, have a moral obligation to put pressure on the United, their government, to demand immediately that Israel put an end to its policy, to say not in our name. This, is, this policy was carried and is carried in the name of British regulation. It's very important that masses of British citizens send messages, send uh, statement petitions, asking their government to say that this policy, that Israel cannot keep using British emergency regulation and using things that were enacted in the 1940s in order to punish Palestine. And I think this is really important. This pressure, in my opinion, is more fruitful and more important than legal cases that are going to take years and years. And we know that Israel will be privileged. Israel will refuse to cooperate. And, and we know that we don't really put our trust in this legal system because it's we know it's against us at the end of the day, to be honest. But the what we we count on is calls for boycotting the Israeli, the Abu Kabir Institute, call for putting pressure on the UK uh, government in order to demand that Israel put an end to its policy. Talking about this issue and sending letters and messages of solidarity to families of uh, Palestinians whose loved ones' bodies are withheld. All these can and, and should put pressure and obviously also demands from the International Committee for the Red Cross in order also to demand that Israel put an end to this policy. These things, in my opinion, as concrete things that can be done and for their immediate and short-term effect are at the moment more effective than... But, but, but uh, as, as you've raised a whole series of, of, of issues there, and but also, you know, practical actions that could be taken over those issues. Um, and I'm, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking about, um, you know, people who have joined, especially from the UK, uh, who might consider getting in touch with their members of parliament, especially if they're on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and uh, see if there can be a Foreign Affairs Select Committee investigation into especially the university links with the morgues. Uh, that seems to be pretty crucial. But also this point that you were making about colonial era legislation being used still by the Israeli state. Um, there must be grounds for um, a proper uh, uh, Foreign Select Committee uh, inquiry. Um, why not? We should perhaps be pushing for that. Um, I, I've got here a question, and we've, we've only, sadly got only five minutes left. So, Badu, if you could keep your answers fairly tight, if you, we can get one or two uh, more questions in. Iman Mohammed asks, what are your thoughts, Badur, on young Israelis like Shahar Peretz, who are refusing to serve in the military and instead uh, offering solidarity with the Palestinian people? even if it means spending time in prison. Okay, I think that's the least, the, that's the least of their moral duties is to reject to serve in this uh, uh, brutal army. Uh, and at the end of the day, they pay a cost, obviously, which is imprisonment. It's nothing compared to what Palestinians go through when they are in prison. But unfortunately, I know that people want to cling to something, but there's such a tiny, tiny, tiny minority they're, they don't even constitute, they constitute a, such a small minority that in, almost the entire Israeli society is indoctrinated into treating the Israeli army as something sacred, both on the right and on the left, and actually takes pride in serving for the Israeli army. She's absolutely, not only sees absolutely nothing wrong with it, but continues to serve. I think, yeah, it's one. 
important to highlight and to mention that there are Israel, there are such few Israelis who refuse to uh, serve in the army and, and thus pay the price. I think the Israeli society as a whole is, is not only complicit, it is a society that directly perpetrates violence against Palestinians. Um, David Seddon, uh, he says, uh, a very powerful and impressive presentation by Badr Hassan of the appalling cruelty and war crimes of Israel. We in the UK have a responsibility to send our anger to our political representatives uh, that the British emergency regulations from the Palestine Mandate era are still being used by Israel and that universities and the judiciary are complicit. And we have a new foreign secretary as of today, by the way. Her name is Liz Truss. Uh, look, <laughs> well, we shall, we shall have to truss her up with, uh, with all of these demands because um, there's certainly, there is certainly so much to be done. And but uh, sadly, we are going to have to leave. But before I do, I just wanted to put one final question to you. And that really is, um, I suppose it's a, it's a catch-all, really. You know, this issue of, of the Israeli government using colonial area laws to hold on to the bodies of Palestinians as bargaining chips is an most extraordinary revelation for a lot of people. Uh, it's very shocking. It's appalling. But how do we get this to the top of the international agenda? How do we make this an issue in General Assembly week? The General Assembly begins meeting next week, I believe, in New York. How do we get it up there? Sometimes it's raised in the Human Rights Council, but very marginally. I am afraid there is a hierarchy of important cases. And in this hierarchy of what matters and what doesn't matter and who gets to speak and who doesn't, unfortunately, Palestinians don't really, don't really have, are not in the upper echelon. And even when we have the right to speak, usually the issue, this issue specifically is always relegated because it's, it's an issue that concerns the dead and we say, okay, let's just talk about the living, even though you can't, it's, it's one part of the whole system, whole intricate and complicated multi-layered system of Israeli control on, and repression and surveillance. It's very hard. I think people can, can make it happen, even if it's not raised in the Human Rights Council a lot, even if it's not raised in the UN General Assembly, even if Palestinian leaders don't really care about this issue as a priority. If it's publicly treated as a priority, or at least if it's shed light on, I know that there are so many injustices that happen all over the world, and we want to highlight all these injustices, not just what happens in Palestine, everywhere. And everything should be fought for. But if people feel that they are touched, that they are moved, that they are appalled by what Israel does, it is them that they can, they, that they can put pressure and actually change the agenda and, and change what, is, what gets attention and what does not get attention. Thank you very much. And finally, there's a message. This is a message from uh, Ingrida. Tatalite, uh, Ingrid, I hope I've got your name right, um, but she says, thank you very much for the talk. Very important issues touched upon, lots of things to act on. Uh, and I think that is the message. Lots of things to act on, lots of revelations um, and lots of useful things for us to go and do. So please do share today's show uh, with friends, with colleagues, with family. It's available on YouTube and you'll see uh, in the chat box where you can get the link. Um, Susan uh, Abulhawa says, thank you for this brilliant talk, Badur. So thank you, Badur, from all of us here at 
Palestine Deep Dive. Thank you for taking the time out. Um, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Uh, and um, I should just like to say also thank you to everybody who's made this possible, Palestine Deep Dive, to Omar, to Alex, to Kieran, to Mac. Thank you very much to everybody on the team. Um, and uh, until next time, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from 